Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here, and you're listening to the third installment of our series about Dubai Watch Week 2021. I'm joined with Rick once again, and we're going to be going through uh, more interviews that I took on scene uh, in November 2021 at Dubai Watch Week. Yes, we have a variety here today. We're going to hear from three people from Watchbox, including the one and only Tim Mosso. We're going to hear from a couple of employees, including the owner at MBNF, and we also have Maurice de Moriac and Alain Silverstein. So our show this week's very much going to be speaking to some of the retailers and then speaking to some of those who are very much in the collaboration sphere. So let's take it away. And here's three interviews, starting with Tim, whom we all love, from Watchbox. Here we go. I'm here with Tim Massa from Watchbox. Tim, how are you? Doing great, having fun. We just got here to Dubai Watch Week 2021. You may have been here for a few days already, haven't you? Yeah, I had a couple of days to explore the city. And are you looking forward to the, this iteration of Dubai Watch Week? Yes, because this is the first really big watch show we've had all in one place in two years, basically since the last Dubai Watch Week. This may be both of our first international trips since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, fact, I did uh, Watch Time New York, but that was a hop, skip, and a jump for me from Philadelphia. What's your goals here at Dubai Watch Week? My goal is first and foremost to survive. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, it's not quite the Battle of Basel, but it's, uh, it's definitely an exciting time, frantic. Experience some watch makers and watch brands that I haven't really experienced before. That started just a few moments ago uh, with Karsten Freistorf, a watchmaker I've long admired but had never actually met. And it's going to continue to some folks I've known about in the industry, but again, I've never encountered firsthand, like uh, Carl Friedrich Schäufele and, of course, Chopard. But I want to just be surprised. Like, there are some known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And the unknown unknowns are the people I'm going to meet I didn't even know we're going to be here and didn't even know I needed to meet. That's really the joy. Tim, for people who don't know who you are and may not be familiar with the work at Watchbox, just really quickly give them an introduction. Okay, my name is Tim Masso. I make silly videos on the internet. Most of them are watch reviews. You might have seen those. You've seen my hands, but you might not have seen my face. And I work as the company's global product specialist. So when someone needs to know all about a watch, whether it's a client or in-house staff, they come to me. Now, what is the world changed like for you in the last two years since I've seen you here to buy Watch Week 2019? Well, Watchbox has become a lot bigger, so I, I would say that's changed. My company is more visible than it was in the past, but I'm, I'm a creature of habit, so I probably haven't changed all that much. But I will mention this. I'm studying watchmaking, which is a great step forward because I always wanted to do it. I've done a couple of overhauls on watches, including the one in my pocket, which is a pocket watch. And so that's how the world has changed for me. I've tried to rededicate myself to the watch. I think two years ago, I thought I was probably going to be moving on to a career in law or business. And I'm actually signed up for the duration now with Watchbox. I'm here for the long haul. So I want to still grow as a person. So for me, that's watchmaking. Um, but watchmaking, yeah. huh? That's fact. So are you doing this as a hobby or do you want to be behind the, uh, behind the desk, so to say? I certainly want to be behind the behind the bench and have the credential. I want to get a certification. I want to make it official. I want to be able to put that on my business card. And I don't necessarily want to give up the role that I have in front of the camera or stop being sort of an interpreter for the watch community, showcase and product. But I think I come to that job with more authority and certainly more credibility if I am a watchmaker. Tim, thank you so much for speaking to us. I look forward to spending more time with you at Dubai Watch Week 2020. Always a pleasure. 
I'm here with Caroline Kalman from Watchbox. Caroline, hello. Hello. Great so, to see you. Thank you. So we've been on many adventures together and many times at Dubai Watch Week. This is 2021. We were here at 2019. How excited are you to be here? I couldn't be more excited to be back. What is so exciting about Dubai Watch Week for you? It brings together the very best of the industry. So you have people who are excited to be here, people who love watches, people who love community, people who want to celebrate the fun parts, the quirky parts, the weird parts of collecting and just admiring watches. And everybody's poised for a really great time. Now, Watchbox has its own special booth here. That we do. And it's a big deal here. Talk a little bit about Watchbox's participation at Watch uh, Dubai Watch Week, as well as in general. What is Watchbox doing in Dubai? So in Dubai, we have a joint venture with the Siddiqui family, and it's something we couldn't be happier about. We, have, we launched Watchbox Middle East in 2019, right before the opening of Dubai Watch Week. And that event in 19 was one of the highlights of my personal career. It brought just the culmination of everything that we've been building. What was so great about it? If we're ever going to launch something in a new region of the world, it couldn't be better in terms of the energy, the excitement, and everybody coming together to celebrate it. So it felt like it was our coming out party in one way, and at the same time, the launch of a really special partnership. So for anyone that doesn't know, just explain really quickly what, what, what Watchbox is and how people can work with it. Watchbox is the leading global platform for a collective of luxury watches. We have locations in the US, in Dubai, in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Switzerland. And we help with the entire collecting experience. So buying, selling, trading, and falling in love with watches. Last question, Caroline. Yes, sir? We're at the outset of Dubai Watch Week 2021. What are you looking forward to accomplishing this week? Bringing the community together, and I said it already, celebrating the quirks of collecting, the part that make us feel nostalgic, that make us feel connected and share in the love of beautiful watches Caroline. and people. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure to sit with Mr. Patrick Hoffman, the Executive Vice President of Watchbox here at Dubai Watch Week 2021. Patrick, hello. Hi, Ariel. Good to be with you. Watchbox has a special relationship with the Siddiqui family that organizes Dubai Watch Week 2021. Explain that relationship. Well, the relationship, of course, in my personal uh, situation goes many decades back. Uh, two years ago, we signed an agreement with Siddiqui. We have now a joint venture with the Siddiqui family and have our Watchbox Middle East office together with them. For people who are not familiar with Watchbox, explain what Watchbox does and, and how potentially people can do business with Watchbox. Watchbox is, in short, globally the biggest trader, uh, buyer and seller of uh, luxury timepieces, pre-owned timepieces. We sell, trade and buy certified pre-owned timepieces uh, in the luxury price range. The pre-owned watch market has really grown a lot in the last couple of years. Of course, a lot of it is related to the fact that a lot of new watches people want to get aren't available. But in your <laughs> words, describe why the pre-owned watch world is experiencing such a golden era right now. I think the, uh, the pre-owned business comes from the fact that we are offering something to the consumer which was not offered before. It was a need of the consumer. And I always take the uh, example of the car industry. In the car industry, you were able to trade a car into a new car. You could buy a second-hand car. You can buy a new car. And that is exactly what the, the pre-owned business is flourishing today. Just several years ago, the pre-owned watch business in the brand-new watch 
business were very, very different and very often wouldn't want to be in the same room together. But these days you have pre-owned watches and new watches getting along in, in large part. What do you attribute to the change in industry perspective when it comes to pre-owned? Well, first of all, I see pre-owned as the secondary market and we say pre-owned, secondary and primary market, they have to come together. What the brands, the primary market um, brands start to understand is that a company like Watchbox is building value and they understand that the underpinning value of a brand is actually the value of the second-hand timepieces that are being traded. So what you're saying is the more popular a watch is on the secondary market, the more likely someone is to buy it on the primary market. Yes, I would say also it's a bit of a payday for the brands that took care of their brands, that took care of their product, and because it's now reflected, the job they did with their primary market is now reflected in the secondary market. Going back to Dubai Watch Week 2021, this is obviously not your first show and we've had the pleasure of speaking here before, but now in 2021, after the pandemic, what are some of your personal goals when it comes to what you're trying to achieve and maybe what you're trying to learn here in 2021? Well, I think it's a community building and part of what we do at Watchbox is building brand awareness, brand value, but also community building. And I think this is an extension and now a physical um, extension of building a community. In Dubai, does Watchbox have an initiative to collect new inventory? And in general, how does Watchbox get the watches that it has to sell? So for us, the buying is as important as the selling, because this is like our raw product we work with. So seeking new and searching for new inventory is for us key. We do that globally and that's the advantage of Watchbox because we are a global company. So we can buy and seek product in Dubai, but sell it somewhere else and opposite. Your background in the watch industry goes back many years. And when we started to get to know each other, you were running the watch brand Lucien Ardan. As a watch lover yourself, when you come to the show and you see the new pieces, and you see all the personalities you may have not seen in a while, what are some of the things that you learned that you liked, that excite you, and that sort of move your heart in the right way as many of us watch lovers are familiar with? Well, it's maybe not a direct answer to your question, but what is really interesting for me now when I look into a showcase and I see a nice timepiece, an exciting timepiece, my first thought is, what's the value going to be in a couple of months and in a couple of years? Today, I'm not thinking retail prices, I'm thinking value. What is the distinction for you between retail prices and value? How are they the same? How are they very different? I think they are very different. It's like when you buy a stock, you don't know the nominal value of the stock you buy today. You only know the value today. And that's a part which fascinates me coming from the primary uh, market. When I go into the trading room where we have our buyers and sellers, I never hear them talk about retail prices. I only hear them about value, market value. Market value is, of course, related to popularity, and watches that are popular tend to have higher market value. But a wonderful part of the watch industry are the new designs, the new names, the fresh things, the out-of-the-way ones. How do you reconcile your interest between those watches which are highly popular with niche things that have an inherent beauty that may have not been discovered yet? I think you have scarcity, which we have to look at, and popularity, of course, and those are two different things. And at Watchbox, we are working with both sides. We have on the one side, we have certain brands with big volumes. 
that they're gaining value. And on the other side, and this is what we see here in Dubai is fascinating how those niche brands, which I would call scarcity, which I would call craftsmanship, which I call details, uh, 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 details, attention to details, those are two different kinds of markets, but both markets have somehow a renaissance in the pre-owned field. You're obviously looking at trends and consumer behavior very, very closely. During the pandemic, there was a lot of interesting behavior. And now, as we emerge from the pandemic, there's probably slightly different behavior. What are you anticipating is going to be a likely set of behaviors for watch collectors moving forward? How is your business going to be affected by the continued changes in the world? I think it's education because I think the market was never as transparent as it is today. And today you can seek education from so many sources, which makes it even more transparent. So I think the market will be much more driven by educated um, consumers and not such uh, by just branding or the look. It's a passion, yes, that will always remain in the watch business, but I think a lot has to do with educated consumers. Patrick Hoffman from Watchbox here at Dubai Watch Week 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, I offer apologies to all those who are lovers of the English language, the proper English language spoken on this side of the water, for use of the word niche. The word is niche, Ariel. So it's niche, not... I don't know what a niche is. It is, it is, it is pronounced niche. But you know, sometimes in America we like to experiment with changing the Queen's English. So forgive us. Yeah, yeah, we forgive you. Anyway, some great stuff there actually from the three of them. But first up, what do we think, and how long is it going to take for Tim Mosso to design his own watch brand? How long is it going to be before Watchbox are flogging Tim Mosso designed watches? Hopefully, not that long. I mean, I think. One of the most exciting areas for me in the space right now are enthusiasts that are starting watch brands. And a lot of people are wondering how they can get into it. You have people making movements, learning decoration, and people like Tim Massa who are legitimately trying to learn watchmaking. Is he ever going to become a watchmaker? The chances are slim. Is he ever going to actually make a watch brand? The chances are probably slimmer, but it's a nice dream to have. And if he actually achieves, he des definitely has some backing behind him. It could make sense. So in that regard, I think that the world needs more enthusiast-driven watch brands, not less. And I'm looking for the logo on the watches to be a wee pair of upturned sunglasses. So I just think pair of <laughs> upturned sunglasses as a logo with like a T and an M in them, and that'll be it. So I, I claim uh, that design right. You know, I've known Tim for most of his career in the watch industry, for sure. I, I met him very early on. And, you know, my relationship with him has been, I guess, different than everyone else. It's mostly as a friend and a colleague. You know, we are so overwhelmed with our own content, we don't necessarily have time to view each other. So yes, he does frequently wear the sunglasses, but like when I think of him, I don't think of like the quirks he has in his videos, but he, he likes that stuff. He and I share a lot uh, in common. We've done podcasts together, a lot of popular shows, and he is the in-house content maker, one of the in-house content makers, but probably the most important one at Watchbox. And Watchbox is a company which sort of spun off from Govberg, which is really a manifestation of Danny Govberg's retail empire that later took on some... Uh, extra funding and they built up a company called Watchbox and they sell pre-owned watches. Uh, Godberg sells new watches. In Dubai, they now have two stores, 
where you can go in, they're, they're Watchbox branded stores in collaboration with Siddiqui, who is the organizer of Dubai Watch Week. And you can go in there and buy pre-owned watches. They have a nice sophisticated system there. They're doing something very, very interesting, which is going around and buying up large quantities of pre-owned watches that they later intend to sell back to the public in sort of a more slick and refined and luxury way. So they're an interesting business concept that has a lot of money behind it. And it was really great to speak with Tim and two other members of the team while in Dubai. Yeah. So Caroline and Patrick both touched on this in terms of, uh, again, reading between the lines about the extent to which Watchbox make the market. Obviously, it's it's well recognized that early investment in FP Journe enabled them to make that market what it is in terms of the ongoing value or retail price for used FP Journes. To what extent are Watchbox the closest thing to a fully integrated, vertically integrated watch organization from the fact that they have the media, they have new watches, they have used watches, they now own bits of brands like De Bethune. So to what extent is Danny's vision really starting to join the dots in the way that some other organizations, I mean, take Richemont. Richemont have bought Watch Finder, who obviously have a bit of a media output with the man with the hands. And they've also bought into, well, obviously, used watches by, by their investment. To what extent are Watchbox really being led by an individual who's really putting his vision onto the market? and taking this in an entirely different direction. I wish there was a succinct answer to that. It's an enormously complicated question that I could speak for a long time about. And the person to really ask is Danny Godberg, who was not available for various reasons at the show. I actually followed up with him and did um, a one-hour-long superlative podcast that people should be able to listen to probably around the time that um, this is available. So you can listen to a dedicated hour with Danny Godberg, who is essentially the co-founder of Watchbox and created the watch business out of the, the Godberg family empire jewelry business. Danny is sort of, I'll call him a completionist, and he wants to own as much of the process as possible. It's not that he really wants to control it, that he does, but he feels that he understands the ecosystem. He's like, why not own a piece of all of it? So he has tried to mm. sell watches, and to sell watches, you need to have access to watches, and to, to for people to want to buy watches, there needs to be demand for watches. So he's sort of seen all of these pieces as natural extensions of what it is you need to do to grow a watch business. He's always wanted to grow. He's always wanted to bring more people in the industry and have a team and, and, and to continue to expand. And this is not an uh, environment where everyone can expand in a limitless way. There's resistance. And, and Danny has tried to grow as a retailer for various brands who uh, may have left and, and gone to try to go direct to consumer. So this is the large ultimate manifestation of Danny's idea that he can do as much uh, retail as he wants by selling pre-owned because he doesn't have brands, brands to deal with because it's pre-owned. There's no yeah. issues on price, for example. You can charge whatever the market price is. And he's this is the dream for the retailer is pre-owned because they get to do whatever they want. So he's really mm -hmm. just built an enterprise around getting these watches, marketing these watches, and selling these watches. And the various pieces you've mentioned, they just sort of all fit into that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting word, a completionist, because I think that's exactly spot on. He is a salesman. They are good salespeople. 
they know how to sell watches. But as you say, in order to be able to sell watches, you need to be able to have watches. So the way they've got around the lack of stock from certain brands is investing heavily in finding stock from elsewhere, be that used stock or be that actually investing in brands in such a way that they can increase production, such as Day Bethune, who I think are probably looking to treble their production in the next few years uh, on the back of the, the Watchbox investment. And that's obviously what Patrick touched on and Caroline touched on is just about how getting hold of the whole supply chain is so important to growing those brands. So they, as organisations, are very much involved in, if you like, collaborating with the customer. You know, they're very much customer-facing. If if a customer doesn't have a good relationship with them, has a bad experience, then they can go somewhere else very easily. They're not the only show in town. That kind of leads us on to the rest of the interviews today, whereby we're touching on a number of brands who are well known for collaborations or bespokeness, if you like. And so we are going to be hearing who we're going to be hearing from, from MB&F. I actually want to mention one more thing about Watchbox, based upon some of the mm-hmm. statements you make before we go on to MB&F, which is another great discussion. And that is that the statement where you said where they create the market. Now, this is a very important point related to them wanting to be media as well, because it's they have to create demand. Yeah. When it comes to a lot of these pre-owned watches, as you know, unless there's people talking about them, there isn't much demand for them. Like There's going to be that person out there that sees it and likes it. But what the internet era has really, really created is this notion that if watches aren't being talked about, they're not going to be in particularly high demand. So Watchbox has the capacity through Tim, for example, to discuss watches and therefore, they're part of the conversation. And because they're part of the conversation, they can whip up some demand. Now, it doesn't always work. It's not a perfect science. But definitely, if you don't talk about them, no one's going to discover it. No one's going to fall in love with the story. And no one's going to buy it. And what Danny has always known is that watches are these wonderful stories that people like to buy. But if they don't hear the story and don't fall in love with the story, they're never going to they're never going to buy the thing. So, a lot of what they've tried to do in in the various types of ways that might, you know, not work in all ways, but again, they keep trying is to find ways of creating demand in the market. And, you know, advertising is one way to do that. Auctions and talking about valuation and working with brands of limited inventory is another way. And with Debentoon, which is a company that Watchbox has a stake in or, you know, Godberg has a stake in, they want to make sure that if they really do a good job and make a brand popular, that brand can't say, thank you so much for your effort, guys. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and sell direct or we're going to choose someone else who's less expensive or whatever to sell through. So an organization yeah. that distributes watches in a market wants to make sure that if they actually do their job correctly, the benefit of their of their time and effort to make a market isn't sort of taken away from them. And that is sort of the ultimate next step and new for them is to just own a piece of the brand or at least have decision-making power so that nobody ever makes that decision and deprives them of the benefits of their of their, their hard effort. Yeah, and uh, I think it's in some previous interviews or maybe some to come, uh, a couple of individuals touch on the increase in the size of the global market for luxury goods effectively as populations become more middle class. And speaking of that, MB&F, the ultimate non-middle-class watch. The great big brands, the Rolexes, the APs, the Patek Philippe's, are not suddenly going to increase their production to cope 
with 150 million more people interested or able to buy watches, all that growth is going to have to come from the smaller brands, is going to have to come from people who were buying Rolexes or interested in that now being interested in something else that can get hold of. And that's where the likes of Watchbox can make the market, can spread the word about and spread knowledge so that people understand that just because it's not a Rolex doesn't mean that it's not a great watch. You know, I don't know that Watchbox is ever going to really be able to do that. I applaud Danny's effort to try to create a market and to create demand. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, um, Danny does have to probably contend with the fact that he's a sales organization first and foremost, and he's not going to do our job essentially better than us. Danny and I have had personal conversations about this for many years. I'll bet. <laughs> I do I do believe that while he is quite astute in a large uh, uh, variety of areas, and I have deep respect for what he's done, he fundamentally doesn't understand that media has to be more about the consumer and and more interested in what they're thinking about than what a retailer might be thinking about, which is let's sell something. I know from conversations with Caroline that they are very interested in what they would call the community and how do they grow their relationship as an organization with the community because they see that that's where the information bubbles up from. It's it's the core geek that giving an interest in a watch three, four, five years later, that percolates out to the market at large. But it's how do they get alongside those you know, watch connoisseurs in the first place in the way that, that you will through a blog to watch. I mean, like I said, their strategy has been to create the community themselves. And in some ways, they've been successful. In other ways, of course, like everyone, they have areas to improve. But where I yeah. think that the sort of <laughs> slightly um, empirical uh, or imperial, for that matter, uh, perspective on the market is that you can't do everything. You can't sell watches and talk about watches um, and, and create demand for watches you you have to remember that it's an ecosystem of different types of entities. And there's companies that make things, and there's companies that distribute things, like logistics companies, and there's companies that sell things, and there's companies that talk about things. And traditionally, if being vertically integrated, making something, distributing something, selling something, and creating demand for something, and servicing something, if that all could be done by the same company, it would be that way. But even Rolex doesn't try to get into the business of selling watches. They're in the business of making yes. watches and making demand for watches. So will Danny succeed in all of his grand ambitions? Probably not, not, not for a lack of, of, of effort, not because he failed a strategy, but because I don't think it can be done. I think it's too hard to do. I think he's trying to do too much at the same time. I don't think anybody, com any company could do it. But I think that as in being a, a premier place, to buy pre-owned watches and to get a great presentation of those watches, Watchbox is going to do it better than many. Cool. So let's hear now from MBNF. Who are we going to hear from, Ariel? Well, we're going to hear from Max Booser himself, who is the founder of MBNF. He is the the MB, and that's Max Booser and friends. And, and, Har and Harris, who I'm not going to um, pronounce his last name quickly without reading it carefully, that would be uh, <laughs> an embarrassment to myself, is basically their head of communication. And he has been there a, a, a number of years. He actually used to be a manager, I believe it was the Kempinski Hotel in Geneva. So he has this exceptional customer service, very worldly. 
Bradley, very, very smart on board to create a real voice for the brand that is really something that a lot of the colleague brands are, are envious of because they've done such a great job. And so these are, are not the only two important people, but two of the most important people um, at MBNF. Hi, I am Harris Hidigarglu. I'm head of communications at MBNF, and we're here at Dubai Watch Week 2021. MBNF is, is quite fortunate because your founder actually happens to live in town. Um, and I guess you are here uh, visiting. Are you staying on his couch? <laughs> we actually consider that, but no, we're not staying at Max's house. We're staying just next door. But we, I, I've actually stayed at his house for other trips. So yes, we're in his hometown. An interesting thing about Dubai and the Middle East region is that it's a very, very important market for a lot of Swiss watch brands. And that might be obvious to people like you and me, but to a listener that may not understand, explain uh, the relationship between Switzerland and the Middle East and why regions like this are so important for independent watch brands, high-end independent watch brands like MBNF. It's, uh, it's a, it's a two-way thing or a two-step two thing. Um, for, for a long time, we're talking, what, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it, it was a market, but it was not definitely not as important as it is now. Uh, and, and two things happened. Number one, uh, the local market did become much more sophisticated, much more knowledgeable. So a, there are a growing number of super sophisticated collectors here, local markets. And in parallel to that, the region became a, a hub. Uh, like Dubai Watch Week, which we're experimenting now, but also more generally. A lot of people from around the world actually shop now in Dubai for all kinds of reasons. A lot of that linked to the very high efficiency of the uh, transportation, airline transportation system and so on. Now talk a little bit about Dubai Watch Week. This is obviously um, you know, not the first one. There's been, uh, I think, five of them now. I was fortunate to be at the very first one. And the last international trip uh, I did, as I've been saying many times, was to Dubai Watch Week, and now here I am again. Yep. Um, what are some of your feelings going into Dubai Watch Week 2021, especially after what was essentially a two-year hiatus of, of most any event? Dubai Watch Week, even before that two-year uh, hiatus, was was an exceptional event because of the the format, the fact that it's not you know a purely commercial uh, show, that, that that it's not back-to-back meetings, 30-minute meetings, that it, it invites a lot more exchange, a lot more uh, liberty in, in how people interact. So even before, uh, that was already the case. Now, of course, with this, this, this need we all have to reconnect and see old friends and so on, it's, it's, it's allowing that. So everyone is so happy to be uh, in, in this context. Earlier today, I had a moment to speak with uh, Fabrizio at Bulgari. And um, of course, you've been very excited hmm. that MBNF has announced its latest collaboration, which is a, a very spectacular women's watch um, with Bulgari. Um, talk a little bit about the importance of collaborations. Obviously, MBNF is a company that has it in the name, you know, yep. Max Boozer and friends. Um, is it sort of surprising to you that everyone has sort of gone on the uh, collaboration bandwagon? Or was that sort of, um, you know, an, an obvious direction that everything was going in? It was probably bound to happen. I mean, as you said, we've been doing it from the very, very beginning. So we're, we're, we're totally convinced about collaborations. And, and maybe a little bit, uh, not frustrated, but, but kind of sad to see that everyone is, is barging in there now. But, but that's fine. I mean, it was bound to happen because in the end, people, uh, everyone likes these collaborations. They're, they're interesting. They create surprises. They create you know, unexpected products. So it was bound to happen. 
What was it like doing a collaboration with you know what is today a major company at uh, LVMH? Normally, these collaborations tend to be between like-minded or, or similar similar companies, but this is this is sort of a, a big thing. Was it as easy as the other collaborations, or were there special hurdles that you had to jump through? The surprising thing, it was probably one of the easiest collaborations, and we were worried in the beginning. Like you know, you just said, I mean, you could expect that a company part of a large group uh, would have all kinds of hurdles, and you know, ranging from legal to whatever, all kinds of decision making. And, and no, this was easy. This was surprisingly easy. I mean, it actually started in Dubai Watch Week, uh, so in one of those very informal uh, conversations. And it was then presented uh, first to Antoine Bain, the uh, managing director of uh, Bulgari Watches, and then all the way up to uh, Mr. Babin. And apparently, uh, you know, it was very, very smooth. And I can tell you the process, at least from our point of view, and apparently from Bulgari's point of view, was, was, was super fluid, super easy. So, unexpected, unexpectedly easy. What is the world like for a brand like MBNF, and and I, I want to make sure that you understand. I'm asking sort of on behalf of all independents. Yeah. Every collector and journalist I've spoken to today, the first day of Dubai Watch, has has mentioned independent watch brands. I haven't even asked them. They they brought it spontaneously. Up. Yeah. It's you're you're the you're, you and and your colleagues are the talk of the town. Why is that? And what are you doing with all that extra attention? I wish I had a, a scientific answer to that. I, I don't. I, it's, but you're right. It's, it's on everyone's lips. I mean, it's, it's, and it's been going on now for, for several months or maybe a year. Maybe a few factors. Um, one of the problems or issues that other, uh, the major brands have is that, as you know, not all those products are available, right? So one very uh, pragmatic uh, benefit we've been reaping is that, well, they've been turning to other brands which did have some availability in terms of product. Now, that's becoming a problem as well, as, as you may have heard. But anyway, that was maybe a first step. Perhaps the whole uh, COVID thing also uh, allowed people to rethink, uh, you know, what they're interested in, what intrinsic value is about, and so on. And I guess for a lot of those collectors, independent brands do have a, a lot of real value to offer. The fact that, you know, there is a lot of work put into these products, that they're not as commercial as some of the big brands, and so on and so on. So a number of factors combining. So Harris, you run communication MBNF and write a trade show right now. For this show especially, what are some of the values or pieces of information that you want to make sure are communicated to everyone you meet with? Well, in a very pragmatic way, uh, we launched uh, the the day before this started our collaboration with Bulgari. So we just you know want to make this an opportunity for everyone to to see the pieces, to to understand, like you just asked about you know how the collaboration uh, actually went through. That that's our primary focus here. A lot of collectors that I've been speaking to in reference to independence love the accessibility they have with the brands. They can speak with the watchmakers and the designers and they feel valued, whereas they'll speak to someone at a major company and they won't be made to feel important. And I think these days people want to feel valued. Yep. Knowing that and knowing as well that there's increased competition in that area, what are some of the things that you think you might do over the next couple of years to, to stay on top and to stay as, as competitive? Funny you say that because it's one of the areas we've picked out as, as absolutely key. The fact that you know the, the brand may grow. You heard about the uh, this this other brand, this other label we launched also a few months ago, the the Mad One Mad Edition watch, which obviously has a much wider potential. We want to make sure that despite all that, we keep that personal connection to the collectors, and and, and it's it's a major challenge. Because even growing by, you know, 20, 30, 50, or 100%, so doubling size, can become an issue. 
we, right now we have that very personal connection. We, we respond to all, we, we don't delegate, you know, to an external agency or whatever. We want to keep that. So that's, that's really highlighted now within the company as a major point of uh, thinking and, 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 and a major challenge. And at the same time, what are some of the things that you'd like to learn uh, from all the people you're meeting with uh, hmm. this, this iteration of Dubai Watch Week? Huh. Very open question. Uh, I mean, the whole you know conference uh, forum uh, format allows for that, and and we, we we'd love to discover things we're we're not expecting. Uh, I don't know what to expect. I'm very open. I'll try to find as much time as possible for the forums, but uh, we'll see. It's too early to say. Well, let's talk about that at the end of the fair. Harris from MBNF. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I'm Max Busser and I'm the founder and owner of MBNF and we are at Dubai Watch Week 2021. Max, thank you so much for speaking to me. Um, I have been coming to Dubai Watch Week ever since the beginning and it's a very special experience for me because you actually live here in Dubai. So for you, it's probably the most local show on the planet, right? It's the most local and it's actually today the most important show on the planet, which it, when it started, it was just a, a miniature little event for independence. Uh, created, of course, by the Siddiqui family, who had a, a larger vision. And when you see what it has become today, I think half of our industry is here this week and enjoying it. A lot of people have said a similar remark about how Dubai Watch Week has become the most important watch show on the planet. And I think it's a very interesting statement. Uh, I don't disagree. But I'd like your opinion on what makes a watch show important. Um, I think what's interesting here is that you've got an event which is totally catered towards the collector, the amateur, the customer. And it is not, and that's really what makes it different, it's not a commercial show. Even though it has been organized by one of the major retailers in the world, that is not what they want. They don't need this. They are, this is, um, for me, as I see it, is a labor of love and a labor of pride. In your discussions with um, fellow uh, watch industry professionals, especially the ones that are living in Switzerland, who have been coming here to each of the shows, what is their takeaway and what do you think that they're going to do in the shows in Europe to make them a little bit more like Dubai Watch Week? I doubt anybody's going to do anything close to Dubai Watch Week. Why is that? Because I don't think they have the right incentives. Because if your incentive is to make money, there is no way you can get close to this. If you're a, um, a show organizer where you're actually going to sell square meters, you won't care for the curation. If you're uh, a show organizer where you actually want to sell watches, you will probably not do as well the incredible, all the, uh, I would say, the master classes, the panels, the, all the interesting stuff which makes us be here. And then the most important part of Dubai Watch Week, what everybody doesn't realize, is that you hang out and it's cool. I, I created the H. Moser and MBNF collab here. I created the Bulgari and MBNF collab here, sitting around having coffees, teas, lunches with people of my industry I love. And hey, by the way, why don't we do something together? That doesn't happen in all these insane, crazy shows which are B2B, uh, where everybody's trying to sell stuff to everybody. Here, there is a vibe which I have never seen anywhere else. I often find that 
the other trade shows, historic ones, many of which are no longer around, are competitive environments, whereas Dubai Watch Week feels much more like a cooperative environment. Why do you think people, when they come here, have more of an interest in working together as opposed to competing against one another? Huh. Um, I, I agree, it's a very inclusive show. Um, everybody is here, um, they're not competing. And it's never been this. Is it because the organizers, the family have set the tone? Is it because at the end of the day, you don't come here thinking how many watches are you, am I going to sell? Is it because a certain amount of actors, me being one of them, even though a minor one, shows, sets the tone and says, they see that we're not here to sell. We're here to mingle, to talk, to share. Um, I'm, I'm giving a lot of interviews this week uh, because of the, uh, the Bulgari collab. Uh, and as soon as I can, I go in, in front of our booth and just stand. And every minute there are young and not so young people coming up to me and said, oh, I love what you do. Uh, can I take a photo? Can you tell me why? Can I see this piece? And you're just you're showing things. You're not trying to sell something. You're just lucky, happy, grateful. They are, we are. It just works. Many people... Uh, of course know this, but many others don't realize it, that you almost single-handedly created uh, a sense of importance for the independent watch brand. It's become a term which is used very, very often. It's probably the most common term that I've heard uh, this show when doing interviews. Um, what would you like to give as advice for newer independent watch brands? You are now um, much more mature. You've been around for a while, since 2004. Give a little bit of advice for the newbies out there that would love to at least thematically follow in your direction. Wow, we would need a couple of hours here. Um, and also I've learned with age that I shouldn't be giving advice. But what I've understood, um, first of all, you actually really have to define your why. Why are you doing this? And if your why is because I think I can sell watches, do not go there. If your why is uh, I hate my job and I want to create a company, do not go there. Um, if your why is, I have a calling, I need to do this, I, I, I've created this idea and I want to share it with the world, then we can start talking because even if you fail, which you probably will, let's, let's get real, um, at least you'll have tried and you'll still be proud. But now going there, whatever you create, the watch world doesn't need another watch. So whatever you create needs to be something not that it needs to be different, but brings something to the table. And the bring something could be just your life. We, we've seen very classic watches come out from people who had an incredible life and wanted to share something, and it worked well. Of course, they're not, probably not going to make thousands of them, but if you want to make 10, 20, 50, it'll work. That's the other thing. Be aware of what is your ideal size, not to make money, but to make you happy. Uh, too many entrepreneurs get into the rat race of, I have to grow, I have to grow, I have to grow. And that is, we all know, the number one reason you fail. Uh, I decided in 2013 to stop the growth and we've been for seven years doing exactly the same revenue, even though we could have done much more. Um, probably one of the wisest <laughs> decisions I took. And maybe another thing I understood is that however smart you are, you are nothing. That you need to surround yourself 
with people who've got the skills you don't have and we clearly don't have all of the skills um, and which actually is a segue on to most people entrepreneurs particularly are pretty good at recognizing what they're good at and they're usually in denial of what they're really bad at <laughs> and try and work on that find what you're really bad at I, I always said I created MBNF as much around my strengths as my shortcomings Typically, I'm a terrible manager of people. I hate managing people. Well, hence why I also wanted my company to remain small, etc., etc. Um, try and understand what you're really bad at and, f- and find people who can help you. Excellent advice. Does it all surprise you, perhaps even shock you, that independent watch brands are so powerful today, especially compared to when you started, it was the epitome of the underdog? I will not say that they're powerful. What I'm amazed is that we're so much in demand. But it's true that, and somebody was explaining that to me the other day, if you just put in relative terms of our, our size, we are still not even a fleck on the radar. And we, we crafted last two years 215 pieces a year, 215. Now, just I think if you put Patek and AP and RM, the hottest brands today, together I think we're talking about 100 to 120,000 watches a year. There are probably a million people who want them and can't get them. If I have 200 people out of that million who suddenly say, you know what, well, that's, that's pretty cool what he's doing. That's great value and it's amazing. It's a nice story, whatever. We would double our production. So the scale effect is now I'm understanding is what makes us suddenly so hot. We can't grow. We don't want to grow. And we just need... I'm saying the whole independent group. If we have 2,000 people more suddenly who pay attention to us, that's how we're totally overwhelmed and overloaded. I want to return to the conversation about the Siddiqui family. Uh, they are a partner of yours, of course, here in Dubai, and they are known to be not only a retailer family, but a family of watch lovers. How do you collaborate with them when it comes to decisions about new products, especially ones that are sold exclusively in this region? Oh. Um, I think you actually pointed something which is really important and why Dubai Watch Week is what it is. They're one of the very rare retailers who actually really love watches. I'm not saying the others don't, but they really love watches. And, um, and uh, Mohammed Siddiqui um, is really the man who is behind all the limited editions of the region. He has great ideas, he loves creating. I often tell him in another life, you probably should have had a watch brand. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll give you an idea. We, we created a piece for the 50th anniversary of the Emirates, which is going to be unveiled uh, in a few weeks. And uh, he gave me an incredible idea. And it's just a simple thing. He was looking at one of my watches and said, why don't we turn the movement 30 degrees? And I looked at it and it's like, wow, that is a great idea. And I felt really stupid because I never thought of that. That's Mohammed. He's capable of, like on, on the, the Moser collab that we did, and we did one of them for them. He said, like, I can have a light blue turquoise. He came with a color. I was like, really? We're all in dark colors? And it's honestly, it's the most beautiful of the four. So um, that's what I love in our industry. Human beings still make a difference. And Mohammed uh, has incredible taste. Did you at all miss the social experience, the communal experience of having these watch shows? And what does it feel like to be around all the personalities that you may have not seen for a couple of years? Um, I didn't miss at all the trade shows. So actually we have decided not to do any more trade shows from now on. 
Um, but I really did miss the B2C, meaning the shows where we could actually meet uh, lo watch lovers. And we've done, but we've done a lot of Zooms and IGs and things like that, but of course it doesn't do, it's not the same thing. And I was really, really, really looking forward to this Dubai Watch Week and it hasn't disappointed. Uh, as you have seen, the amount of visitors I think is honestly is multiplied by five or ten. I've never seen that many people here. And, um, and the level of information education has just jumped up in two years, probably thanks to this whole COVID era where people were much more online. Thank you, Ariel. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's been great, and I just hope there are more, but there are not many more. There was watch time in New York, of course. There was, and um, there was this. Max Booster from MBNF, here at Dubai Watch Week 2021. Thank you very much. My great pleasure. So we've heard from both of the MBNF guys there. I think there's quite a few interesting, if you like, quotes to come out of that, which we should delve into. Let's deal actually with Max first and work backwards. So the watch world does not need another watch brand. Discuss. It's very simple what he means. He's trying to explain that unlike a consumer good that is in high demand, the world doesn't need more wristwatch innovation from a mechanical luxury product. The world needs more company that makes, I don't know, medical equipment and imaging systems and, you know, uh, environmentally efficient things. You know, these are the things the world needs. What the world wants is art and beauty and comfort and prestige and status. And what he's basically saying is that when you make a watch brand, you're making something that people want. But don't pretend that people are going to want it just because you make it. You have to first make something desirable, and then you have to spend years telling people why it's desirable. And that's essentially what the first few years of MBNF were. So give us a bit of the potted history of your experience with MBNF. What's the, what's the, I've heard the Max version of the story, but what's the guy like yourself looking in's version of the history of MBNF? That's an excellent question. I actually probably deserve to give a lot of credit to Max Booser himself and his colleagues because when I first started what I do back in 2007, online media was essentially shunned by the major groups and the major brands. We were not to be spoken to. We were not to be taken seriously. We just weren't anything that was uh, on the radar of a Cartier, a Rolex, anything like that. N not at all. And Max Booser, who was participating in these online communities of watch collectors and, and understood that this was a, an up-and-coming area, had the completely different approach. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's all these real watch collectors online talking, publishing, making content for the world to see, and you're ignoring them? You, you know, you guys at the big brands are complete idiots, and this is exactly how, how Max would speak. He saw this as like this open, fertile ground to connect directly with consumers, share with them his stories. Of course, it wasn't going to be easy, but he embraced online media and helped legitimize it for the rest of the Swiss watch industry. So be so Max got in, others like him, like Orwork and you know other little cool brands like that that were around at the time, all embraced online media, which again, it was giving them coverage for free. And that slowly started to trickle up to the major brands who said, oh, wait a minute, People are talking about $100,000, $200,000 watches 
online and these little brands are going here to get customers. Oh, we need to get in on that. So if it wasn't for people like Max Booser and him specifically, I'm not sure that the larger watch industry would have been as normalized to uh, online media as it was as, you know, quote unquote fast as it was. Now, they do seem to be a smidgen upset and the phrase used was barging in at the whole everybody's getting involved in collaborations. Now, obviously, it's kind of from their point of view, it's in the name of the brand, Max Busser and Friends. On the one hand, they were sort of complaining that they were the trailblazers and everybody's copied them. I, to a certain extent, I want to say that, you know, Patek Philippe, two guys collaborating, Tag Heuer, yeah, similar, Jager Le Coutre, probably an, a more original collaborator, but in terms of the modern understanding of a watch brand collaborating either with somebody who's not in the watch world or a brand that's entirely different from their own, were MB&F the forerunners of what we view as modern collaborations? I mean, it's difficult to say when you start the clock at the beginning. The original men's wristwatch, you know, the Cardi Santos, was named after the person Santos. Like, the collaboration True. watch came, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> has always been around. That's a good point. Um, Very good point. What Max Booster did in his prior role running the watch division at Harry Winston is say, hey, guys, I have this idea. Let's, every single year, hire some crazy watchmaker to make one watch explain the story of this individual then show the watch and we as harry winston will make it and we'll do that and that will be called the opus collection of these masterpieces done by these cool watchmakers that i find these guys will tell the story they'll be so excited about it and it'll make them and they won't do it for that much money and it'll also make us a bunch of money and it worked out great you know they got they had more than a, a dozen of them and had a good run and that was the original kind of what you call collaboration between two brands. Harry Winston with this independent watchmaker who's their own little brand making something unique. So in the sort of high-end watch sense in the modern era, he's sort of the shining example of it, right? Everything is essentially collaboration because not everyone, you know, has an in-house designer and things like that. So I don't want to split hairs, but they do deserve credit for doing something you know, two decades ago that right now it seems to be a fresh idea for some brands. Now, it wouldn't be a show about Dubai Watch Week if we didn't give Baselworld a bit of a kicking. <laughs> and uh, it was Mr. Booser's turn to throw in, throw the elbow at uh, the demise of Baselworld and his discussion about is Dubai Watch being a commercial show? Is it a labour of love? The whole idea of him just being on the stand, meeting and greeting people. Is Max possibly in just a slightly uh, removed orbit when he attends these kind of shows? Because, you know, his stuff does sell itself. In the position that MB&F are in now, is there ever not a waiting list? Is everything not basically already pre-sold? So maybe he doesn't have to do the hard sell anymore that, that others need to do. I, I wouldn't be so sure. Yeah, well, that was going to be my question. To what extent are we being told one thing, but actually they're still all peddling like ducks 
under the water trying to get these watches out the door. So this is what I think is going on. Early on in the brand, it was very clear to Max that he would have to collaborate a lot with external partners to get parts made, things designed, services he needed. MBNF wasn't really a marketing gimmick. It was just a very transparent reality that we're a small number of people relying on a larger number of partners to get our watches made. We're not going to pretend that it's the four, the four you know, employees or the two employees that started, whatever it was, that are doing this all. We're going to make it clear that we're using all these buddies out there. And part of that was um, you know, diplomacy, but another part of it was to make sure that um, they weren't charged too much because the, the friendlier they were, the more they publicized their friends, uh, the more cooperative people would be, right? I think early on, Max had to spend a lot of time speaking to people in the industry because he needed a lot of their services. Now, as the company is more mature, he has people to do that. Most of his time is speaking within the brand. He's talking to his managers, designers. He's talking to some of his retailers and consumers, of course. But for the most part, he doesn't go to the trade shows anymore to talk to a bunch of people from around the brand. He has his own little family, so to say, and he has people on his team that can do a lot of that discussion work with suppliers and things like that. So I think that's how it's changed for him. But I don't think that there's any less effort required in marketing this stuff. It is a pipe dream if any brand believes that at some point your stuff is so popular you know, it's just autopilot taking orders. Even Rolex has to put effort into managing a whole bunch of stuff to maintain what it has going on. So I think that his job has changed for sure, but I think that MBNF has to work just as hard as ever to stay relevant. Good stuff. Well, that was an overview of MBNF from the guys at the Coalface. So we are now going to hear from Maurice de Moriac. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, so Marista Moriak is a small Zurich-based brand started by a gentleman named Daniel Dreyfus, who recently handed over control of his brand to his sons, Massimo and, and, and Leo. And both of them were in Dubai, and I had a chat with Leo for a while. And it's interesting because my journey with them goes back to when I started working with their father, and I remember seeing them as as boys. I remember having dinner at their house one time, you know, in Zurich. <laughs> and and here we are having a very proper gentleman's business conversation in a in a different country and it's uh you know, it 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 makes it makes one's feel it's not just their age but that like they dedicate their life to something. It's like, wow, I'm I'm seeing people grow up within this industry. This is this this uh, watch career thing isn't exactly just a passing fad for me. Yes. Uh, so let's hear from Leonard from Maurice de Moriac. Hi, my name is Leonard Dreyfus from Maurice de Moriac, the only watch brand from Zurich, Switzerland, and I'm here with Ariel Adams at the Dubai Watch Show. 2021. Oh, thanks, Leo. I appreciate you uh, introducing me. That's nice. <laughs> um, it's so good to see you here in Dubai. Um, tell me a little bit about this market as a place for watches for your brand. Thanks um, also that I can do this interview. It was uh, quite a coincidence running into it, but always a pleasure. The uh, Dubai market is uh, quite interesting for us as a small brand because there are many, many watch collector clubs 
And as you know, they have seen uh, Patek and Rolex and all the other stuff. So they want now starting the producing their own uh, limited edition for their club member. So this is a really, really interesting uh, thing for us because as a small watch company and king of customization, we can do whatever they wish for. So, and we can also produce a small number of pieces. So that's why they're really interested in us. But I have to admit, uh, we thought uh, it's getting faster onwards. Uh, it takes time, it takes time. I mean, it's watches, it's not uh, the easiest business, as you know, but uh, I'm sure the future will bring a lot of for us. Now, in speaking to a lot of the collectors here to buy Watch Week 2021, the word that they all keep using is independence, independent, independent. And when you speak to them more closely, it turns out that they're interested in doing business with brands that cater to their needs, make them feel appreciated, which is exactly what Maurice de Moriac and, and some of your colleague brands do. But it's interesting to hear that, it, of course, it takes time to develop the relationships. What's your particular strategy in developing those relationships that, that lead to that market penetration later? I mean, this is a hard question and I wouldn't speak to you if I found the answer yet, but I think uh, we, we are doing what we are doing best, just being patient and just being nice and open-minded and trying uh, really to do their best. I mean, uh, I'm here now, uh, we have now even, you can choose different sapphire uh, tinted glasses, which is brand new and not many brands or I, I don't know any brand who, who can support the clients with different uh, sapphire glasses. And I can show you right after uh, the interview, I can show you some. No, it's always important for a brand to have something unique to bring to the table. So it makes a lot of sense that you say we can we can tint our sapphire glasses in multiple ways. On your wrist right now is one with the red tinted glass. Over the years, I've worn multiple Maurice de Moriac watches with tinted crystals, and it is fantastic. And I love how all the small independent brands have their their special secret sauce, so to say, that makes them interesting. What is the vibe? in your opinion. It's obviously been a couple of years since we've been to, to watch shows. For you, talk a little bit about the energy and the emotion that you're sensing around you. I have to say, I, I came here uh, and I was, uh, I had always Basel World in, in the head and it, it's smaller, but uh, today I've seen the Rolex CEO. I mean, I've never seen this guy. I mean, Philippe, how come I've never seen the, the man of the man? And he was talking to the debutune CEO or something. And I mean, I just walked in and I've seen this uh, conversation and I was just impressed. Like it got smaller, but on a very, very high level. And I'm impressed uh, to keep on this level. I don't need the huge puzzle show with uh, running around and everybody's strapped. Here it's in a smaller environment super professional and uh, you you see uh, decision makers and you can talk to them and it's uh, I, I have to admit it's it's such an open-minded uh, territorium for I mean uh, for a difficult uh, time and difficult I mean uh, yeah there are a lot of uh, things going on so I'm really, uh, I have to say, I, uh, I'm impressed. It's definitely a very intimate event, and you're absolutely right that the, the top decision makers and the important people are here for, for what is essentially a summit. That is what Dubai Watch Week has always tried to be, a summit of the most important personalities. And of course, it's exciting to be here. Last question, in terms of travel, 
obviously it's very important to develop relationships everywhere, but you can't be everywhere, you can't travel everywhere. How do you make decisions when it comes to where to send yourself over the next you know, 12 to 24 months? You have to, you have to go out there, but how do you know where to travel to? Yeah, I have the lucky situation. I'm uh, I am born and raised in Zurich, Switzerland. So, and Switzerland is very small, and and basically 90% of watchmaking happens in Switzerland. So, my ways are the most uh, the farthest you can go in Switzerland are four hours, and then you're in other country. So, this uh, decision I don't have to take, uh, or not so many. And uh, but uh, Dubai, I will definitely. Uh, come back because uh, it's just uh, like I said you where are you gonna see the Rolex CEO next <laughs> Leo Dreyfus from Maurice de Moriac watches thank you very much thank you thank you Ariel okay so I really enjoyed that interview I particularly enjoyed his observation of the man of the man being there so he observed that uh, for Dubai Watch Week even the chief executive I think that's is, his, is that a title chief executive of Rolex um the CEO yeah CEO had had decided to attend and was seen cavorting with uh, the CEO he reckoned <laughs> of De Bethune. so the reason I put this interview in this section is because Maurice de Moriac are also in this kind of sphere a much lower price level of bespokeness, of customization, of collaboration, but collaboration directly with the customer in a sense of here you can have this basic watch, but you can have it with all of these options. Do we see an issue in the future whereby whereby there are so many variations of the same thing that actually the identity of the watch. So you look at a Rolex or you go to an auction and everyone, they're all auctioning effectively the same watch. It's a, you know, uh, a Pepsi from 20 years ago, a Pepsi from three years ago, whatever it is. It's effectively the same watch, just in models. But when you start making watches that are so bespoke to the customer, but still produced in large numbers, does that start eventually to become a problem? Because it just looks like a, you know, a part somebody's raided the parts bin. Uh, it's basically like Lego for watches. There's something to be said on both sides of the equation, for sure. And you're right. If you're trying to build a large brand that has a key iconic model that sells a lot of units, you have no desire to make watches where someone's like, uh, I don't recognize that. So... Yes, a Rolex, an Audemars Piguet, and a large, large list of other watches and models have to have what they call distinctive looks, where from across the room, somebody who more or less knows what they're looking at can identify that. At the same time, there's a different type of consumer who doesn't want to be recognized or identified as much as they want to make a statement. And again, this is a smaller percentage of the consumer base for sure. But the watch, you know, hobbyist category has a lot of people who would actually prefer to have a, oh, what are they wearing? Or I'm not really sure what that is. What watch is that? That's interesting, but I can't tell what it is. For them, that's the message they want to project. Or maybe it's just that day. So they don't want someone to know what they are wearing. They would like someone to be 
confused and curious. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure curious to know what that person has that I don't. Do you see how that can be an attractive statement they make with their wrist that's very different than someone knows this is a Rolex? Yeah, but I wonder to what extent it plays into our imagination that there are all these people that are going to come up and ask us what we're wearing. Have you ever, out with of a room that you know is full of watch geeks, either asked somebody what they're wearing, like randomly, or been asked by somebody what you're wearing? Yes, but it's rare. I've done it once. You've asked somebody what they're wearing? I've asked, I've gone and actually spoke, I've known what they're wearing, and I've gone and approached them and said, that's quite cool. And it was a James Cameron deep sea being worn on a ski slope, which had clearly been knocked. The 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 pip was missing. The guy was a <laughs> offshore oil rig worker. It had been through the wars. I thought, I'm just going to go and say hello to this guy because this is quite a baller watch to be wearing skiing. So I've done it once. I've never been asked by anyone other than someone who I know is into, oh, what's that you're wearing? I, I have a few times on both ends, but I'm probably a special case. I think it happens a little bit less in maybe the West. I think it happens a little bit more in the East. You know, you, you see that. I've definitely seen people looking at my watch. I think I think it happens. It's just not so overt. I think that uh-huh. you just sort of feel like the room is looking at my watch. Or maybe you just hope. But at the end <laughs> of the day, it's about the message you want to project and a little bit less about the message people are actually receiving. Well, we're going to move on to a final interview today, which brings customization and collaboration into a whole new sphere. You could recognize this from the world of art, and that is Elaine Silverstein. What Before we play the interview, what's your relationship with Elaine? Have you known him for a long time? Have you been involved? I know you've reviewed a number of the watches that he's been involved with. Yeah, he is a Paris-based designer who probably saw his most prolific era of design in the late 80s and 1990s. He had his own brand, just called Elaine Silberstein, for um, a number of years. It went defunct. And it was actually everyone's presumption that he would just disappear. But in fact, he, he, he maintained and he did some collaboration watches with MBNF and uh, Louis Arard. And he's sort yeah. of back right now. He's a very colorful character. He has a lot of intelligent things to say. He has a very polarizing style that when I first started, he actually was, you know, his, his brand still existed. And uh, he was not widely appreciated by collectors. Then the brand ended, and of course, people liked it. He had made everything from tourbillon to quartz watches and everything in between. And so his ability to run the gamut of luxury to mainstream products is interesting. He has his own distinct flavor, for sure, but you can tell that he's also very open-minded in conversations and things like that. So he's just one of these wonderful you know, personality installations of the watch industry that if you're lucky enough to get to know, it can really help embellish your appreciation for the hobby. So let's hear from him now. back at Dubai Watch Week 2021, day three, and I'm sitting with the legendary Alan Silverstein. Alan, hello. Hello. You have had several years of newfounded success. You were a very special story because you, in the 1990s especially, were a very prolific watch designer. Then, 
of course, the world changed. And, and now you're back. Do you feel that you are back for good now? <laughs> Who knows? I know actually uh, my design is quite successful. And the different collaboration I did for uh, MBNF or Luera. Uh, I came here uh, uh, to participate to a panel with Max Busser. And it's fun to to be in Dubai, the weather is fine, all my friends are here, it's a sort of gathering of the tribes, uh, far from the uh, windy uh, Europe, I would say. <laughs> now, as a designer, you are very distinctive, um, especially in your early career, you focused on um, bright colors, large shapes, um, a wonderful sort of um, childish sense of wonder meets horology and industrial design. Now. The world is different, you are different. How has your design sense evolved over the years and how would you describe your design sense today? It's a very open question, my dear Ariel. Uh, let's say, first of all, uh, I, uh, I studied 40 years ago a journey in uh, watchmaking uh, design and uh, sometime uh, I would quote uh, the Bible, uh, God's created the time and he entrusted us to uh, create the, the best perfect instruments to uh, measure the passing of the time, the passing of our life. And I'm, I'm fully convinced that somewhere I'm trying to make my uh, little beast on my wrist this such some sorts of witnesses of our time. So uh, yes, with my pure design, color, primary colors, I'm trying to make a sort of open pa uh, blank page. And in fact, uh, my watches will live only when uh, people will wear on their wrist. So this is, uh, I'm not trying to, to give uh, a decoration, even if I'm an interior architect by profession, I'm trying to make the more like a child uh, toys, it should be open. And actually it's amazing for me to see that uh, maybe I was too early in the market. Now uh, even the third generation of customers I had, I started with their grandfather, Ooh, don't tell me. Uh, and they love my watches. As a designer, how does it feel where sometimes it just takes a while for people to appreciate your work? You know, it, people will eventually catch up, but once you design something and you release it, you know it's great, but the public, it takes them a while. Is it sometimes frustrating that not, it takes people a long time to appreciate what you're doing? I tell you, I'm not frustrated at all now for a very simple reason. When I studied on the late 80s, it was the pre-hysteric pre time of uh, the revival of uh, mechanical watchmaking. And we had two uh, crazy filters. One, the dis importers, distributors, who knew everything. Second, the dealers who just know how to speak Rolex, Patek, Patek, Rolex, and so on, mostly vintage. So when you were a newcomer from France with my crystalline design, uh, it was like I was coming from, uh, I was an alien. <laughs> and I'm still for some an alien, but uh, which is good about the instrument of time, uh, only time gives the chance to be recognized. And when you start on the early mid 80s and you're still on the business, time will tell. So artists, I don't want, I'm 71 now and I want to have some future years full of joy, fun, happiness. 
relative to this instrument on time. But yes, it takes time. But now the market is open. Uh, thanks to you and other social networks, we could target directly to speak directly to our community, our followers, because now it's a community. It's no more fans. Before I have to go through dealers, distributors, over. Now I could, uh, but thanks also to very innovative dealers like uh, Mr. Sediki in Dubai or uh, Hourglass uh, in Singapore, Yoshida in Tokyo, uh, Chronopash in Paris, West Time in LA. These people, they really invented on the early 90s, late 90s, sorry, the art watch galleries. So actually it's no more dealers. We have uh, two ways to to make our creation alive and well uh, to end user, to uh, would-be customer. First, you, social networks, and, their, and your uh, own communities. And second, these watch art galleries, because uh, at the very end, uh, a watch is uh, definitely a piece of art. What means art? It's something which may create an emotion. It could be a <laughs> woman, yes, I'm French, but also a car, it could be a painting, whatever. But yes, if I'm able to to create a little smile on the, uh, on the face of somebody looking at my watch, it's a winner. You've been designing for so long now, you must pull from multiple places for inspiration. Yes. Especially here today uh, in Dubai, Dubai Watch Week 2021. What are some of the things in the world that are inspiring you and making you think about the next <coughs> designs? It's a, it's a very important question because uh, too many watch brands are working global. They think uh, uh, we are all with the same taste and, uh, and the big difference I always took into consideration is to <coughs> make fine-tuning, I would say. This is why uh, for years uh, I work on the Chinese collection, Japanese collection, also Islamic collection. I'm working on it for years now. <coughs> because you are, since as far as my path, my journey in watchmaking is concerned, <coughs> I'm trying to make something which is related to the most intimate part of yourself, the, the, the passing of your time. And you see, in many cultures and civilization, or tradition, whatever, there is a wonderful uh, way uh, uh, some, the father will give to his son a watch when he will reach adulthood. What does it mean? And sometimes, uh, I hope it's also mother and daughters. That means when you're a child, you are living under the, your parents' time zone. What means to become an adult? Now you live under your own time zone. And as a father, I'm proud now you, you live on your own time zone. But the little things who will measure your own time, which is no more the parents one, I will offer to you. That's very interesting. So you see, this is not what Patek said on their uh, advertising about intergenerational. I think the, the instrument of time is a, for me the perfect gift. And when I'm, it should be inspiring for what designer like me. The ability to create something which will inspire a father or mother to offer to their kids when they reach adulthood. What do you feel about being back at what is essentially a trade show? We've had two years of very little 
Um, and many of us were, of course, worried that the trade show as we knew it <clears throat> would, would go away forever, of course, with the, with the you know, expiration of Basel World. But now we're sort of back. Do you think that there's going to be a resurgence in these communal events where we get together? Even if the, the reason we get together is different, do you think that these types of large events are here to stay and only going to grow? I'm very happy that the trade show are uh, diseased. Basel World was first designed for distributors. This is the it was the way when I started to attract to interest would be partner to have the distributorship of our brand in one country. It's over now. It's communal events, and I think the Dubai Watch Week is a perfect example of the gathering of the tribe with fun. It's also very professional, but for it's no more uh, business to be B2B. Be, it's over. Now it's B2C and interaction among us. I think I was very among the very few uh, who started with uh, Max Busser collaboration. In what, and now it's a big trend. We have fun working together. So here is I love the word you, you keep. It's communal business, but no more trade. I I hate this word. Trade. It's not. And you see, there is also an. I have to highlight another big trend, actually. It's uh, CPOs. Certified pre-owned. Oh. I'm for sure that Danny Goldberg and all these uh, gangsters will be... They, they understood that there is a true trend for honesty, uh, value, heritage, passing of generation. So this is why actually I'm very interesting because to, as a modern contemporary artist, I, I'm on these uh, long term. Too many brands for the, the crazy uh, 2000 years, they just made short term money. Everything, uh, the bubble exploded. Now there is a big trend with independent brands. Yes, but it's a long run. We, some uh, of us uh, were taught on a hard way what means the long term in the religious tradition. And thanks to uh, Mr. Goldberg and others, uh, because Watchbox will definitely educate a brand new generation about what means quality and value for money. So, and I prefer to have this educated generation to they will be able to understand what I'm trying to, to do it. And uh, I tell you frankly, the, the last uh, success I had with uh, MBNF and uh, Luera, the conclusion, uh, my uh, CPOs uh, jumped for, by 30%. Alon Silverstein, thank you very much. Thank you for this uh, quick and uh, friendly chat. <laughs>
but he probably knows as much about movements and watchmaking as most, most if not, you know, very few watchmakers out there that know a lot. So I, I'd say that at this point, his skills are probably very well-rounded. He was talking about kind of the differences between global watch brands and him as a designer, just the difference between mass-produced or industrially produced and watches whereby you can identify the originator, whether that be a Max Busser or an Elaine Silverstein or a, an, an Uhr work whereby you know the two or three people who have been involved in it. As a overarching question, both from the context of Dubai Watch Week in the Middle East, but then maybe a more Western market, do you see the continuation of interest in the smaller, more hands-on brands continuing? Or are the big brands going to start to make a play for those sales numbers that they're clearly losing to other people? You know, Rolex could double their production and sell them all. Doesn't seem to be any sign they're going to do that, but they could. Is the build of the market of the smaller brands eventually going to reach the point where the big brands are going to go, wait a minute, we could be making a whole lot more money if we just open another factory here. I suppose a bit like Danny Govberg, the ultimate protection that Danny gets himself is to invest in the watch brands. Are the big brands just standing there waiting for the wee brands to make the market for them? And then they'll just move in by producing more Rolexes, more APs, more Patek Philippe's? Again, a very interesting question and one that I want to answer this way. It is true that big brands are going to chase where they see as areas of money. And that means they might displace the market placement of a particular, you know, niche watch brand. At the same time, there's sort of this bell curve to the watch market. And assuming that people buy watches because they like them, there's always going to be at one end of the curve the mature seasoned enthusiast who has been collecting for a number of years and who's really interested in things like originality and art and being a little bit more distinctive. The big brands are going to be, for the most part, just a little bit too generic or possibly not risky enough or maybe just not individualistic enough. And so I always think, based upon that bell curve, there's always going to be some space in the market for these type of niche brands. And even if the big brands go into their area, because of that natural bell curve, it'll just sort of pop over somewhere else and there'll be this other area of art. Because again, there's going to be those mature enthusiasts, aficionados, connoisseurs, call them what you will, but the type of person that just wants that product. Good, good. So yeah, we'll leave it there with Elaine. Uh, one final question, which I suppose touches on something from the very first interview uh, with Tim, and he was talking about some of the things that had surprised him. What was the biggest surprise to you? I'll ask it from a point of view of watchmaking as opposed to something else that happened at Dubai Watch Week. But what was the biggest surprise that greeted you with the content of Dubai Watch Week this year? Are you talking about the watches? Well, I mean, if you want to share a story of somebody jumping out of a birthday cake at you, then, you know, feel free. But uh, yeah, I'm assuming the watches. But feel free to share any good anecdotes. Well, you know, one of my favorite things about Dubai Watch Week 2021 was the growing number of locals who attended the show. And what I mean by that are yes. collectors, not just from Dubai, but surrounding uh, areas in the Gulf region who drove over there from Saudi and from Kuwait, people there from Bahrain. It was amazing to see all these people who I'd never met before, but who are either enthusiasts or retailers or distributors. 
And I was just wowed as to the sophistication, the maturity, and of course, in other ways, the immaturity of the market for watches in the region. What I walked away feeling was very safe in knowing that the watch industry in some way or another would have a long long time of of being an important part of these societies. There's a lot of people there, a lot of interest in it. And a lot of them are quite entrepreneurial. And they're trying new ways to sell. Even the Siddiqui's themselves um, have tried a lot of interesting, innovative things. And so I think from the side, we can often see the Middle East as maybe a conservative region, in some ways not advancing as fast as other places in the world. But in a lot of little areas, they're very advanced, very sophisticated, uh, and very, very modern. And so I love seeing the sort of uh, you know endemic entrepreneurialism and enthusiasm for watches there. I saw it more so than ever in 2021, and I, and I really hope to see even more of it the next time I go. Yeah, a number of people had touched on the number of locals or people from the, the, the region surrounding Dubai Watch being there. That's it from us this week. Ariel, what are you up to? Where can people find you on the internet? I uh, I can be uh, still read on a blog to watch dot com where I'm still reading. Not fired, not fired you not yet. Fired not fired for my company, yet. not yet. No, of course. In addition to this, uh, I do the superlative podcast. I can be found on Instagram Ariel to watch, and of course, you can follow our main a blog to watch account there on social media. We've uh, we've got a bunch of stuff, and uh, we're going to be doing a lot more podcasting this year. So I'm looking forward to it. Good, good. You've got stuff and things going on. That's good to hear. And you can find me at Rick TikTok or on the other podcast at The Wind Up Merchant. So thank you very much for tuning in. Tune in again next time. See you then. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.